Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Jane Kirtley is a professor at the University of Minnesota, uh, Media Ethics and the Law, and uh, Professor Kirtley lives not far from the epicenter of the uh, the violence. Jane, thank you so much for, for joining us, and First of all, how are you feeling being that close to what's been taking place? How are you feeling? Well, I, I can't deny that it is anxiety-producing. Um, I'm very fortunate. My neighborhood is, as, as you mentioned, about 15 blocks from where most of the violence has occurred. So I'm not right on top of it, but we clearly get smoke from the fires and so forth. Um, there's never really been anything of this magnitude in Minneapolis or St. Paul before, so it's a little hard to know how to react, but, you know, certainly I'm apprehensive. And you know that area well. Well, I do. I've lived here for 20 years. Um, are Are you and your family worried for your personal safety? Well, that's a tough question. I just had an email from our neighborhood group saying we should do the kinds of things you do before a big storm, frankly. You know, bring in your garbage cans, bring in heavy furniture, anything that could be used as a projectile, turn on lights, that sort of thing. And we know from the press conferences that our law enforcement officials have been holding that they have a huge backlog in terms of responses to things like burglaries and so on. And so to even imagine that you could get any kind of timely assistance from police tonight, I think, is is probably not very realistic. Um, as you said, they have called out the National Guard. Um, we've been assured that the, the the number of troops that will be available uh, during in the in the area tonight will be much much greater than it was last night. I have to say, just as a you know a layperson that is not a law enforcement expert. It was astonishing to me that they actually seemed to think that by simply ordering the curfew that all the problems were going to go away last night. And, of course, it, it escalated in a, in a huge way. There were at least 23 separate fires set, arson fires. And, um, you know, it's, it's, so it's, it's a grim situation. Yeah. And when the, when the mayor or the governor or both of them say nobody's going to be arrested, that's almost uh, turning on a green light, is it not? Well, they've, they've changed their tune as of today. Uh, they've had a couple of press conferences, and they've said, I mean, here's, here's their narrative for what it's worth. They're saying that the majority of those who are engaged in violent acts, uh, rioting, looting, and so forth, are not from um, the, the Twin Cities area or even from the state of Minnesota. Um, they pledge that they're going to release the list of the people that have been arrested in the last 24 hours, indicating where they're from. And it certainly was true that in the Ferguson, Missouri riots some years ago, um, after the first day or so, many of those that were arrested were not from the community. So I can't rule out that as a, as a plausible argument that we have you know, what we used to call in the olden days outside agitators coming in. The Attorney General, uh, William Barr, has said that has said this is going on and that they are from the left. Um, there are others that have said that they are white supremacists that are coming in. You know, no, I mean, obviously nobody really knows, but um, the narrative here has been that the majority of the protests um, up until really yesterday were peaceful and were being led by local residents, and now that dynamic has changed. So what 
both the governor and, and the mayor and others have said is they're, they're telling everybody, take this curfew order seriously tonight because we're going to take the view that if you're out and about, even if you're just standing by somebody who's looting, that you are aiding and abetting and, and you will be arrested. So that's what they're saying. We'll see if that's what happens. Okay. How do you assess what's going on in your country right now? Um, I, I have to tell you that I have never felt um, as frightened as I do today. Um, the, uh, you know, when you combine all of this with um, the pandemic and the impact that has had on the public and the loss of jobs and, and the issues with the economy, it really does feel like we're, we're you know, we're teetering on the edge of an apocalypse. Um, I, I think uh, truly that there are issues with the message that is coming from uh, President Trump and his supporters. Um, they do not really seem to be terribly interested in trying to unite us. They seem much more interested in trying to divide us. And I know that you and I don't always agree politically, but just, I mean, that's just my view um, that right now we really need a leader that, that would acknowledge the concerns that people have and, and try to make some effort to um, bring some unity, and that's just not happening. You know, I looked at uh, the tweets uh, from Donald Trump this morning, and I when he, when he was tweeting about uh, anybody who had breached the uh, the perimeter of the White House would be met with savage dogs like they'd never been they've never seen before, and weapons like they've never seen before. And and to me, that just that just sounded like he was just almost asking for 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 more of the same. You know, what you're quoting is is the thing that just made my blood run cold because this is the kind of rhetoric that, you know, we associate with autocratic countries, with absolute dictators who, you know, leash the dogs on those who um, disagree with them and so forth. And I mean, nobody's arguing that people should be able to breach the perimeter of the White House. That, that's that's a false concern. The issue is the way he was, frankly, almost gleefully uh, seemed to be contemplating the possibility that those who were protesting against him would, would be injured or, or killed. The, the, and, the, the, the commentary shouldn't come from the president directly. No, well, absolutely not. I mean, you know, uh, I'm sure there are many people out there who would voice his viewpoint, but I think the president does have an obligation to be the president for all the people, not just those who support him. Uh, are you worried about your society in the United States? We see these upheavals. This one is worse than anything I remember since 1967, 1968, when I was really too young to understand what was going on in a dynamic society. Um, but, but we just see it happening again and again at various levels, but it seems to be the same or similar uh, nucleus of, of, of issue. Are you worried about your society? Yes. I mean, I, I don't think any thinking person could not be concerned. I, you know, I, I think it's a, a trait of, of those of us who live in the United States fundamentally to be optimistic and to think, you know, our, our systems will work and, and when we have problems, we'll sit down and negotiate and, and come up with a solution that, that may not please everyone, but will help us move forward. And at this point, we seem to be at such a, a serious divide, a stalemate, that I just don't see how that can happen. And, and I, I don't say that lightly, because I really have always believed in the power of negotiation and, and the ability of, of right-thinking people to, to reasonably disagree and, and yet um, you know, come together to try to discuss how to solve intractable problems. And Minnesota, you know, is, is known to many people. They still think of it in, as the era of, of Hubert Humphrey as a progressive state where... 
you know, we, we value consensus and so forth, but even here, we're, we're not seeing that in a way that, that was even the case when I first moved here 20 years ago, not to mention what it was like here 40 or 50 years ago. So I think there's been a fundamental shift. I think there's lots of blame to, to uh, you know, distribute in terms of where that's coming from. Um, but I will say, and you and I have talked about this before, that I, I think the rise of social media and its ability to spread disinformation and misinformation and, and to bring together people that are on the marginal sides of society. And I don't mean that they're poor or something like that. I mean that they, their intent is evil. It is not to do good. And it's giving them uh, a platform and a way to recruit other like-minded people. And I don't know what the solution to that is. I'm a strong believer in free speech, as you know, so I'm not talking about shutting them down. I'm simply mm-hmm. pointing out that this is a technological situation that has never existed before, and I think it's, it's changed the whole shape of the debate. Yeah. You please take care. Um, well, I will. Be Thank safe. You. And And I'm going to stay in touch with you, and uh, hopefully tonight things will be better and uh, saner heads will pre- prevail. But please be safe, Jane. Thank you very much, Roy. Take care. Professor Jane Kirtley from the University of uh, Minnesota. She's been a, a great guest uh, with us on this program and, and previously when I was still working Mondays to Friday. That was a long time ago. Uh, she's been a terrific guest and just, uh, just a wonderful contributor to the program. According to the numbers, the most recent numbers from today, Canada has 90,161 cases total. China, only 82,999. So according to the numbers we're given, we're about 8,000 cases ahead of China. We're number 14 in the list of nations as far as total cases are concerned. They are 17. They have four new cases today. Canada has 743. Anything that comes out of China these days, I tend to uh, look at with a somewhat jaundiced eye. Hi, everybody. It's the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Networks. When it comes to this country and China and the relations, particularly in the wake of the British Columbia Court decision concerning Meng Wanzhou, uh, what exactly, where are we, where do we stand, what's this relationship about now? And uh, as well, Beijing passing security legislation, which will dramatically alter the life of Hong Kong residents. We'll have a Hong Kong resident joining us tomorrow. And also allowing the People's Republic of China police to directly engage any public protest. Canada, remember, has 300,000 citizens in Hong Kong. Guy Saint-Jacques is the former Canadian ambassador to China. He was uh, four postings there, most recently until 2016. And there was an incident last year where Mr. Saint-Jacques suggested that Canada should respond to China, uh, cutting off uh, canola buying purchases from this country and um the story has many angles to it and the one that we hear most frequently is that the ambassador was urged by an uh, an official from global affairs maybe at the instigation of the prime minister's office to not speak to media about china and uh ambassador saint jacques thank you very much for taking the time and thank you for being open with us well uh, thank you for the invitation mr green what do you expect the response from Beijing to be to Canada following the British Columbia court decision uh, about Meng Wanzhou? The, the G government has had plenty of time to consider its actions. What do you expect them to do? Well, I think that there are a number of things that they could do. And in fact, uh, we had been warned on, on the day where Justice Holmes uh, rendered a verdict that, in fact, 
<clears throat> if Mrs. Meng was not freed, that there would be uh, further measures taken against Canada. And so what I expect is that on the trade side, uh, unfortunately, some of the of our exports uh, will be faced with a challenge. You know, they will pretend that there is a, a disease that has been found, uh, as they did for the, the canola export, or they will slap uh, new tariffs. Uh, they have an habit of, uh, of doing that. Uh, the latest example is uh, following... Uh, the uh, request from the uh, from Australia that there should be a full and independent inquiry on the uh, pandemic. Uh, China slapped a 70% tariff on Australian uh, barley and uh, cut the imports of beef. So I think that they will they have, they probably have a list and they are now deciding uh, what will uh, uh, hurt us. Regarding our two Canadians, unfortunately. Uh, they have to brace themselves up because I think they will spend uh, quite a bit of time uh, in uh, Chinese jail. And the, the Chinese have to decide whether they will uh, put them to trial. In fact, the, the process has been suspended because according to Chinese rules, a decision should have been made on around January 17 whether to proceed with the trial or not. And I think they decided to wait for the outcome of the hearings that took place in January uh, and uh, now that they know that uh, it's most likely that Mrs. Meng will spend a long time in Canada, that they are going to decide to uh, uh, put them on trial. And in China, of course, uh, once you are formally accused, uh, you are found guilty 99.9% of the time. Mm-hmm. And there are two Canadians on death row. Uh, well, we have also two Canadians uh, on death row. Uh, uh, one, Mr. Schellenberg, in fact, his uh, sentence was commuted from uh, 15 years to uh, uh, life sentence, and that coincided uh, also with uh, uh, the, the process of Mrs. Meng. And, and usually that's uh, when they take action. Shortly after there is a development, they announce something. And I think at that time when they uh, decided to sentence, uh, to, to revise the sentence of Mr. Schellenberg, and this is very unusual in my experience that a sentence would be revised from 15 years to, to life sentence because, uh, you know, in a system where the the uh, the accused has no chance uh, to to defend himself or herself, uh, you know, it's uh, all preordained. In this case, they, they pretended that uh, there were new elements that had been discovered that justified the, the life sentence, but in my view, it was just to add pressure on Canada. The other case, uh, uh, the uh, the sentence uh, was uh, they had to uh, to give it, and they decided to go uh, with the the death uh, sentence. And so all this to say that they, they can be ruthless ruthless in terms of uh, putting pressure on a country to try to get what they want. Yeah, Ambassador Saint Jacques, what are your thoughts about what Hong Kong will now face with China passing legislation allowing its militarized police to intervene directly? in major protests, not to mention the fact that the People's Liberation Army has a garrison of some 10,000 in Hong Kong, or close, uh, in Hong Kong, and more divisions uh, just to jog down the road in mainland China. What do you expect to happen? Yeah. Well, first, it's important to uh, remember that uh, under the one country, two system, uh, the foreign affairs and uh, uh, defense uh, questions are under the purview of uh, Beijing, and that's why they have this uh, garnison. But now, in fact, with this uh, proposed law, 
because now it has to be finalized by the uh, legislative body, but the, in fact it could be ready as early as August. They are giving themselves the right to intervene, to post uh, openly uh, their representative, their intelligence uh, services, and all this. And, and this... Uh, you know, this is the type of law that should have been adopted by the Hong Kong government. In fact, there was an attempt, I think it was in 2003, to have such a law, and this was uh, uh, suddenly uh, defeated because the people of Hong Kong could see uh, where this was going to lead. Right. I think that uh, uh, China has a lot at play here. Of course, they, uh, they don't know what to do about those unrest, and they see that there are now more and more calls for uh, Hong Kong to become independent. Uh, they are afraid that uh, there would be a, a contagion uh, and that uh, the, there, there could be demonstration uh, taking place in uh, uh, the mainland. But uh, Hong Kong remains a very uh, important economic sector for China. Seventy uh, percent of the foreign direct investment that goes to China goes through Hong Kong. The many state-owned enterprises have their uh, have offices also in Hong Kong. And for Canada, it, we we have a lot of play because Canada is the country that has the largest number of nationals uh, in the city. In fact, we have over 300,000 Canadians. There and in Canada, we have uh, about 500,000 Canadians of uh, Hong Kong origin. Okay. That's why I was very glad by the uh, declaration that the Prime Minister uh, made uh, together with the uh, uh, the UK and uh, the Americans. Uh, of course, uh, Donald Trump has also threatened to uh, withdraw the the special status uh, of Hong Kong, and this uh, could be uh, could. Uh, really affect the uh, the role of a center as uh, an open and in independent financial center because uh, without those uh, special privileges, uh, uh, it would be considered as uh, fully uh, uh, part of China. So the, the, the next few months will be important to, uh, to watch. Uh, the hope is that there will be enough pressure put on the Chinese government to delay the adoption of this law uh, otherwise, I think that, uh, you know, we will see uh, uh, the, uh, the pressure going up and uh, mm -hmm. uh, more demonstrations, of course, in, in Hong Kong. And All then right. if, the, if the situation were to become uh, very difficult, you know, the, imagine the challenge for the Canadian government of trying to organize uh, the evacuation of 300,000 Canadians. Yes, particularly now with the pandemic underway. Ambassador Saint-Jacques, very much appreciate the time. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, former Canadian ambassador to China, Guy Saint-Jacques, who was criticized for speaking openly to media and his thoughts about, about China, uh, criticized by the current government. With us, Curtis Lee, founder of the Guardian Angels in uh, the 1980s, early 80s, chapters across the United States. Curtis is a talk show host at WABC Radio in New York City, mayoral candidate for... New York uh, next year, and the first time I talked to Curtis was maybe 40 years ago. My God, time flies by. How are you, Curtis, and where are you? Oh, Roy, I'm alive. I'm alive. Shot <laughs> multiple times. I've survived all kinds of traumas, and right now I've crawled into the belly of the beast. A second day in a row, back-to-back, -back, belly to belly. We're talking the Black Lives Matter protest that turned into a riot last night in Brooklyn, New York. 
You can hear the crowd in the back. Uh, half of them are like white privileged kids living off their parents' trust fund, and they're screaming at me that I'm a white terrorist. What a belly laugh I had. I said, you, you folks, you don't even know what it's like in the streets. And they're like, yeah, yeah, cops are killers, KKK, NYPD. These young people are nuts. So uh, how many people are there, Curtis? How, how many people are at that protest? Oh, well, because of what happened last night. You know how people are. They, they, they've been chained to their radiators for 10 weeks with this uh, pandemic. They haven't been able to get a drink, go to a bar, restaurant, cabaret, a club. So this is their release. So everyone's out here. There are thousands. Now, a lot of them are spectators because they know they're expecting a night of riots, uh, number two, in which they're going to attack the police in a police precinct. But the others are hardcore leftists. They're part of AOC's group, as I call her, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, better known as All Out Crazy. They want to bring down capitalism. And this is just another notch in their belt because they're claiming all problems lead to the police. And you know, without police, there's anarchy, there's no more capitalism, and they get what they want, socialism slash communism. So you look around the United States, uh, Curtis. Uh, I watched last night. I watched the rioting that was taking place, and uh, I get a sick feeling in the pit of my stomach at seeing your cities and seeing the country going through what it's going through. What happens tonight? What, What has to happen what do you think is going to happen? Well, if you notice in Minneapolis, the most liberal progressive city in America, or one of them, they believed that the demonstrators would not riot. They believed that they would not attack that third precinct. Not only did they not attack it, it looked like a scene out of Benghazi, Benghazi, Benghazi. They sacked it. They firebombed it. They looted it. They caused the cops to put their tails between their legs and run. So they control the streets of South Minneapolis. So now you have all these other radicals and these others who are interested in doing harm to the country and to the Trump administration thinking, yeah, in our streets, we can take over a police precinct. And unfortunately, this is not the city that was run by Rudy Giuliani, Mr. Law and Order, years ago. This is a city run by Comrade Bill de Blasio who took his honeymoon in Havana behind the sugarcane curtain of Fidel Castro and loved the Sandinistas of Daniel Ortega. So he actually supports these demonstrators, although he's saying to them, don't hurt the police. Are you kidding? That's, that's, that's what they intend on doing, is attacking the police. And you're running against them next year. Well, thankfully, he's term-limited out, Roy. So there'll be a whole new host. Oh, he is. Replacements, all of them who basically want to give over the streets to the thugs and thugettes. And I'm just going to have to come at them hard because they think they can control the economic engine of the world, New York City. If New York fails, it hurts the world. It hurts Canada. It hurts all of America. It hurts New York State. And especially this city, if you cut my veins and arteries, I bleed New York City and I bled all over the streets of New York City over the years defending the people. And I won't let them take this city or this country over, Roy. Curtis, what's happening now remind you at all of what happened in the late 60s, 67, 68? Oh, absolutely, because I was uh, I was cutting my bones back then looking at the anti-war era 
versus Richard Nixon, 1968, when unexpectedly he was elevated to the presidency because there were riots in urban areas after the death, especially the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. Anarchy reigned, and people decided the silent majority. We're not going to let them take over this country and turn it into a socialist, communist enclave. And so the people of America came forward and made sure that that didn't occur. And I have a feeling we're going to have to do it all over again. History repeats itself. This is a brand new generation of hipsters and millennials, many of them spoiled by mommy and daddy. And they need to go back to places like Iowa, where there are more potatoes than people, and Idaho, excuse me, Idaho, where there are more potatoes than people, and Iowa, where there are more pigs than people, because they wouldn't tolerate that behavior there. How bad does it get tonight? Oh, I have a feeling it'll get bad, probably worse, because the cops, they have become impotent. They have been told, stand back, stand down. We saw what happened in Baltimore five years ago after the Freddie Gray situation in which cops were told to stand down and Baltimore has never recovered. Look at what's happened in Minneapolis. The mayor said stand down and the thugs took over the police precinct and they want to take over the city. And so I have a feeling in New York City tonight, the demonstrators already have an eye on a different police precinct. And I don't think the police have been told that with every ounce of energy you have and all the force that is necessary that the law allows you to do not let that happen curtis uh, thank you for the time i really appreciate it and um depending on what happens tonight do you mind if we give you a call tomorrow oh no problem and remember we have no bail now in new york city so all the arrests that have been made over the past two days they're already out in the streets i've seen them here in the demonstration ready to do it all over again all right curtis thanks a lot my pleasure, Roy. Take care. Curtis Sliwa from WABC Radio in New York City, running for the mayor's job next year and founder of the Guardian Angels. So predicting uh, more of the same or even worse for tonight. Another story that has really generated a tremendous amount, a tremendous amount of uh, response, emotion, uh, initiative, hopefully, is the issue of what's going on inside long-term care facilities in the province of Ontario and across Canada. Not all of them, not all of them. Many are run exceedingly well and professionally, but there are those that we've heard about, and the Canadian military pointed out just how terrible circumstances are in the homes that they were in, the, the, some of the homes they were in. Miranda Ferrier is the president of uh, public service, uh, uh, personal service workers, and uh, the, the association in the province of Ontario, and she joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. We've spoken with her before. Miranda, thank you very much for taking the time. Were you at all su- surprised at what's been found at some LTC homes by the military? Um, hi, Roy. Uh, you know, unfortunately, we were not surprised at all uh, by the report. It, you know, I can't say that because we all know that long-term care homes, there are certain ones. I mean, I myself am a personal support worker. I also worked in long-term care. You know, I experienced and, and witnessed many of the things that were in the Canadian Armed Forces report. But to see it on paper all together, all those words, I was disgusted as the rest of Canada. What's the impact on the individual personal support worker who reads this, who sees it, who knows it, who goes to work in the environment that they've gone to work in. What's, what does this all 
due to the just to the well-being, the emotional well-being of your members? You know, you'd think that it would bring them down, but to be honest, Roy, they have been nothing but absolutely thrilled that this report came out. Uh, For over a decade, personal support workers, nurses, we've all been screaming um, about the issues and the neglect and the abuse um, in long-term care. So they're actually really happy that this report came out. Mm -hmm. How long have the politicians known? How long, how long have they been aware or been made aware of the concerns you have and that we heard very clearly explained and read uh, by the military? Oh, almost 20 years, Roy. They've known about these problems. Associations like, like the one I run, uh, the nurses associations, even the doctors, etc., etc., family councils, and these long-term care homes, we have all been in meetings. We've written letters. Uh, I've done media in the last decade uh, that spoke to these issues. And, you know, the, the crazy part is we were actually seeing movement towards fixing these issues in long-term care with the creation of the Ministry of Long-Term Care here in the province of Ontario. They were moving towards, uh, you know, making those changes. And then the pandemic hit. Mm-hmm. And then we really see the issues. And I think it's important that the public is aware of that this is the reality in some of our long-term care homes. You know, I'm going to be speaking later on uh, with a former producer of my program whose mother was in a long-term care facility, and she thought it was a good facility. But nevertheless, she was in tears at night because her mom would be hitting the uh, button to uh, to get some assistance, get some help. And uh, Karen will tell us this later. She heard buzzer after buzzer after buzzer after buzzer, and they just kept going for hours at a time, and nobody stepped in to help them because the the personnel weren't there. And when you, when you know that, when you hear that, you th- honestly, Miranda, the re- the reaction is, my God, why didn't somebody do something about this? I've been asking that same question. I mean, we've been seeing a deficit of personal support workers who take up 80% of employment in long-term care facilities um, decrease rapidly, um, over the, especially the last five years. Also, too, there are no set ratios in long-term care. So a PSW can care for up to as much as 15 to 20 residents on one shift by themselves. So How do you do that? Oh, I, mean, how, you know, how can I don't do know that? how I did how it. I, I did it. <laughs> I don't know how they do it. It's they are part of a broken system. Yeah. The PSWs are also victims of this broken long-term care system. And so, um, as as president of the Ontario Personal Support Workers Association, what is absolutely most essential to be done? We have to look at providing. Uh, we have to fix the, the long-term care sector, number one. Number two, we need to self-regulate the personal support workers so that they have that support, they have a base to grow from. We can start to staff these long-term care facilities properly, um, and, and we're moving forward with that, hopefully, with the province of Ontario. Uh, the doors have been open, and there's been great conversations. So you have hope that things will be done and the Ford government will step up and do what they need to do, but in any event... The public eye is on everybody now. Absolutely. Miranda, good talking to you. Thank you so much for the time, and thanks for what you do. Oh, thanks, Roy. Have a great day. You too. Miranda Ferrier, 
and uh, public s- support workers in, in the province of Ontario and elsewhere across this country do just absolutely incredible work looking after people who need it. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.